So special hello to Janai and Eric, whose shining faces are up there on the screen. And to Vicki, who's quoted in today's Press Democrat about the Black Lives Matter sign on the Sebastopol, about how important it is. So check it out, Vicki. I didn't know. Thank you. <laughs> So Janai and Eric are longtime members of the Sangha who now live in Santa Barbara to our loss, perhaps I think their game. Um, most of you know them. And if you don't, you have sat and walked and done kinhin and walked in and out on the floor Eric laid in the Zendo when we first moved into the building. So the relics of your passage are still with us. And I want to start today by quoting from a book Janai just wrote, published, called The Moon, the Hair, and the Pearl. It's the oh, refined wisdom of a life of psychotherapy and a life of spiritual practice. So here's the quote that really caught me. She wrote, of a spiraled process in human activity, that repeatedly takes us back to familiar places and leads to the possibility of increased awareness. The trick is to see through repeated behaviors in ways that ask different questions. In this world where nothing stays the same, we seek stability and safety. All is constantly changing, spiraling, revolving, changing, and never returning quite to the same place. But we avoid seeing that because it makes us dizzy and unsafe feeling. And we don't have to notice it so much because we have a familiar routine and spiral. We have uh, the wallpaper of our day seems much just like yesterday's. The wallpaper of our home, our ideas, our work, our moods, our partners, where we live in a sea of, as Janai said, repeated behaviors. And there's a kind of comfort in turning your gaze away from the dizzying pace of change, from the complexities of the world, from the complexities of our own lives. And we all have strategies and habits of ignoring what we fear to see and of focusing on what seems to be under our control, safely repeated over and over. And then when we practice, we come to have some sense of returning and spiraling and we think now we've got it. It's another big mistake. Well, we all do this repeating over and over and focusing on that instead of the unknown. And we don't notice the price we pay. And though we fear change, you know, it's the only game in town. And doesn't go away. And it benefits all living beings because change includes development, evolution and growth, as well as the alarming having the rug pulled out from under you. And in a world of, of ever-change, either your awareness of life is increasing or it's decreasing. 
it cannot stay the same moment by moment. So the Dharma, the Dharma is a life of awareness, of curiosity, of inquiry, of intimacy. It's a life of asking different questions, as Janai suggested. It's a life of hands and eyes, as Mary Stairs reminded us just last week. A life of carrying our awareness, our heart-mind, into action, into all our activities as a path of kindness and intimacy. So this Dharma path of awareness has long been known as enlightenment, such an exciting word, as such a misleading term, because it's a noun when it should be a verb. We seek it as a noun because it sounds like a place, a place of peace, security, and ease. As I mentioned sometime before, when I was a kid, I lived in Queens, New York, uh, and our local subway station was actually an elevated station and a rickety thing that looked like an erector set. And it was called the Bliss Street Station. There was actually a place called Bliss Street. But in fact, I looked closely. There was no Bliss Street. There may have been once, but there was no Bliss Street. There was only a place called Bliss Street sticking up in the air on top of an erector set. Total delusion. But we seek this as a noun, this enlightenment, because it speaks to us of security, bliss, peace, ease. But nowadays we speak more of awakening, waking up moment by moment. And this is truly the condition that is sometimes called enlightenment. It's a truer expression of that than the noun enlightenment. But like so many of us, when I first turned to the Dharma, I sought enlightenment. I wanted to leave behind my very painful state of uncertainty and anxiety. I wanted to leave my mountains of delusions and achieve a state of ongoing ecstatic peace. I was willing to work hard for that. But luckily, the Dharma is much bigger than my feeble ideas about it. So it began to support my life, as it does yours, without my leaving delusion and achieving enlightenment. Because that's not what the Dharma is predicated on. So one day, uh, Katagiri Roshi was giving a talk in Minneapolis. And he said in the course of his talk, a talk about awakening, he said, you don't wake up from your delusions, you wake up to them. I was shocked. This is counterintuitive. And so becoming an ecstatic had become less and less relevant. But surely the path was about leaving behind delusion. Now, I've mentioned this shocking insight before because it was seminal for me. And it is really important. I want to return to it now because it has particular lessons for us today. Because to wake up to delusion is to wake up to bias. Delusion is bias, bias is delusion. And it's to wake up to bias and to see how it extends through your life and through the world. So the Dharma is all about waking up, but it it doesn't have an exclusive on waking up. There are many, many paths of waking up. 
Dharma is the deepest vision I have found for the reality awakened to and for a path or way of life for a life of waking up. And Zazen is foundational for this kind of awakening to the depths of life and of a path to that. Because Zazen is so much for seeing your mind and seeing both the power and the immateriality of your thoughts. You see over and over and over how your thoughts are fabrications. They're made up in your mind. They are real as thoughts. And they got real power as thoughts. But they're not real things in themselves, which is why we can open the hand of thinking and let them go. We wake up moment by moment. Every moment, a fresh moment. We wake up from isolation, from narcissism, from walls. You could say we wake up from our delusions by waking up to them and accounting for them. Don't rush to the wake up from part and shortchange your awakening and digesting life. Because without that awakening and digesting, there is no leaving delusion of delusion behind. And there's always a fresh moment in a fresh delusion. So you need to know how to address delusions rather than just to escape the ones you think you have today. So we wake up with our hearts and our feelings, as well as our rational thought processes. Waking up necessarily includes waking up from the myth or dream of a rationally ordered world. That dream is delusion. And the only way to become free from a delusion is to meet it and ask different questions. You can't shortcut it by ignoring it. You have to ask different questions and not the questions you've already asked because here it is as an illusion and the questions you've asked before haven't met and disentangled that delusion. You have to ask different questions to see a delusion hiding in its cloak of invisibility because delusions are very skilled at that. So delusion, delusion starts with the first moments of consciousness inescapably, in other words, for conscious beings. When we cut a seamless reality into bits, then separate the bits and then oppose them to each other and put them in ranked hierarchies and preference. But delusion doesn't really take hold of our mind until we believe our story. Do we believe the idea that has these, these cut up and put and assembled ideas? When we believe the story of separation, opposition, and hierarchy that we've imposed on reality, we are deeply deluded. Now, I would never want to um, disrespect stories. We need stories everything from origin myths to why get out of bed in the morning. 
many stories. But we need to know their stories, creations, fabrications, perhaps symbolic. So stories can be wonderful and can convey all kinds of truths. But believing them to be truth itself is a dangerous delusion. It's what we call ignorance. In the view of Dharma, ignorance is not a passive state of not being informed. That's its usual English language meaning. But in the Dharma, ignorance is understood as an active condition that we create to our peril whenever we believe in our thoughts rather than having our thoughts, knowing them as thoughts. We don't want to throw away. Our thoughts are wonderful things to have, to know about, to relate to, to live with. But if we believe that our thoughts are how the world is, we're in trouble. The delusions created by separating, opposing, and making hierarchy rule so much of human life. And we see them perhaps more easily in our emotional life than in our mental life, because in our minds, they hide as just how it is. Delusion takes the form of fear, of hatred, of greed. Those are emotional expressions, for the most part, of delusion. Now, fear arises when we feel threatened. And violent and dangerous acts do sometimes threaten us. And that is a, where fear is a reality-based response. But because there are some such real acts that give us a, threaten us and we feel fear, we tend to believe that all our fears are justified. When I feel fear, I feel justified because I have that's my experience. And then hatred is born of that kind of justification because we, what we fear, we hate. And then we let that hate be a marker of our so-called right thinking. So we believe in our fear and we believe in our hatred and we tend to believe also in our greed because we naturally want things. And so that must be right. And it segues right into greed. Delusion is a terrible disease. And it was one of our talks recently, was it Leanne? Someone quoted Yun Men's famous koan, which we have invoked many times, in which he said, medicine and disease cover the earth. The whole earth is medicine. Delusion is this kind of disease. Covers the earth. And the medicine? It's waking up over and over to reality, to the reality of this interdependent world. Waking up also to the endless creation of delusion so that we can avoid falling into the trap of believing in it. And the medicine is kindness, love, and sharing or inclusion. These three are all connectors. They are creators of Intimacy, expressing the dharma of the radical interdependence of all things. With a kind mind, our actions are kind. And that was what uh, Mary Stairs was talking about. She said, 
may her sort of morning say, thing that she says to herself is, may my mind be kind today. Every day we need to renew our vows. And we're never consistent, of course, which is why we need to repeat and re-invoke freshly for a new day. A good vow or good intention is one that is big enough, in a sense, loose enough that it can meet each new day's new circumstances informed by how we lived it out and didn't live it out yesterday. Perhaps the hardest kind of delusion to see, let alone to address, is one that's either foundational to your sense of self or very widespread so that it's reflected back to you over and over and therefore seems normal. You know, when things don't favor us, we think they're unfair. When they do favor us, our comfortable home, our good health, our security, we think they're fair. We've earned them. We've deserved them. These are, this is one of those mass delusions that is passed around and received. And with that rationalization, we ignore that favoring me involves unfavoring someone else. So rationalizations are at the heart of delusions. They are delusions, especially mass delusions and core delusions. And these rationalizations that sort of attempt to explain and justify uh, delusions are backed up by defensiveness. And that's sometimes when we can see them. When we feel defensive, we are girding ourselves to, uh, to defend something unexamined. Or it wouldn't come up as a defensive reaction, which is kind of a you know across the board kind of feeling when it rises. Defensiveness is a generic response to what we don't want to see, what counters our view of ourselves or the world, and that seems to reduce us. But in fact, it's the defensiveness that reduces us, because defensiveness is a radical pulling in and building of walls and narrowing. So painful as it is to see ourselves being defensive, it's a very useful thing to have, to have happen, to pay attention to, because it's a marker that something is out, out of whack in the way we are seeing ourselves in our world. Because, you know, defensiveness is different from defending. You can defend yourself from an insult or an onslaught. But defensiveness is a posture, so it's generic, and so it extends way past any useful role. And what if a delusion is both knitted into your sense of who you are and also mirrored back to you endlessly? Racism is like that. It is one of the worst mass delusions of humanity. Every person in America, probably every person in the world, but here we are, every person in America has some racist ideation ideas, all of us, with lots of variations, of course. And it's not particular to Americans, 
but this is our field of life. This is our field to plow for, for Buddhas to arise instead of ghouls. And the issue is always here, always before us, though many turn away thinking that they are insulated from this corrosion. So almost everyone knows racism is terribly wrong. And that's why everyone denies they're racists. It's a met that denying of one being a racist is kind of a measure of how big it is. The very denial points up that it's a core value. Something in there is a core value. We don't want that to be a core value of ours, but we all have racist ideas. That is to say, fabricated ideas, all ideas being fabricated, fabricated ideas based on irrelevant features and past delusions. So part of the uh, effort to remove Confederate and racist monuments is because the stories of the past that we call history and confuse with fact are foundational for racism today. And the greater danger isn't taking down one too many statues or uh, criticizing too few or too many historical figures, but believing that racism itself is a relic of the past. That's a serious danger. That I sort of fell into for a long time. I conveniently thought that the causes, I saw that there's present, present uh, racism, race-based oppression, and I thought the causes of it were basically in the past. The causes of the impact on people today were primarily, well, basically in the past. And more recently, I've come to understand how pervasive and punitive racism continues to be. It's a racism is alive now, and convenient thinking abets that. So, how to ask different questions? How to see differently from the way we thought in the past, which we thought was a pretty good way to see? To see. We all know there are places where we really have really crummy thoughts, you know, narrow and mean little thoughts. And we know those, we can feel the, the meanness kind of poking at us, but we also have uh, delusions that we think are, are fine, that we don't think are, are mean, and we don't think are narrow. We don't know how to see what we don't see. And yet that's exactly what we have to learn to do. That's our Dharma practice. That's our life in America practice. That's our anti-racist practice. And there are so many good voices available now to help us refine our understanding and help us to see through our delusions. Like when I encountered recently, I was listening and reading, I guess, an article. The delusion that by having friends or lovers who are black or other colors than the putative white, that one has thus demonstrated one's non-racism sufficiently. That's called credentialing, and that's one more delusion. So the, the delusions are rife in our lives. And you can't turn away from some delusions and yet do a practice of awakening. So what to do about these racist ideas? So I've always said, I, along with, I guess, Jen I, the questions 
have more lasting power than answers. Basically, question, you can, you know, a good question can last you all your life. But all answers are provisional because they're pretty good now. But they're of the, they're of the moment. So we need a cult to cultivate a lifelong process of asking, asking questions and maybe refining to a few good questions that really have lasting staying power for us. Like, how have I been formed by the forces of racism in a racist society? Not have I been formed that way, but how? Or, and how does it manifest in my life? How has it benefited my life? That's a big one. How has it hindered me? Because lies hinder everyone. Delusions hinder everyone. So I've turned to a number of other voices. For instance, Robin D'Angelo, who does anti-racism trainings. And uh, in one interview with her that I read about her workshops, she said in her workshop, I wasn't raised to see my race as saying anything relevant about me. There we go. Being white was just normal. What's white? No, being white was, I'm white and it's normal. Those were the givens of the world I grew up in. It is relevant, deeply relevant. But for those of us here to this morning who are most, most of us who are so-called white, it's very difficult to see the preferential benefits of our whiteness. It's been hidden from us. And we've benefited. First it's hidden, what can you see? And then we benefit from it, so why would we want to see? Complicated, difficult. White is a fabrication that privileges us so-called white at the direct expense of anyone not white. And whiteness exists in order to do this. It's a terribly pernicious delusion. I read something by Peggy McIntosh, uh, who runs something called the Wellesley Centers for Women, who said, I've come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant and trained to remain oblivious. So to question the mass delusion of race and privilege is to begin to undermine it. To question it requires developing a language to investigate and dismantle it. A language in society that keeps shifting, as we say, is this an okay thing to say? Is this not, language is changing rapidly and we need to pay attention. And while part of the harm done by the invisibility of privilege is how it suppresses others and builds privilege by stealing their effort and potential. Another part of the harm done by racism and privilege is the way the delusion suppresses language for exploring and expressing it. Without a language about there is in fact whiteness, black racism, anti-racism, without language for privilege and, and all of these things, it cannot be explored and, 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 and investigated. That's part of what that mass delusion of white is right 
was about. Avoiding having a language to investigate. So the more I read and think, and the more I discuss it with all of you and with my other friends outside, the wider my vision becomes, the more language capability I have. I'm a little bit like a, a toddler, you know, learning new language, new ways of seeing. Recently, I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, which I recommend. It's an extraordinarily generous and acute and blunt in ways, self-revealing and vulnerable account of the inner life of one black man living in the world of the dream of whiteness. And it also takes up the impact on other black men's lives. It's a window into a, a, an experience of life that I haven't had in a very personal way. And so it's hard reading and very helpful and beautiful. So uh, Coates describes the mass delusion of white America's superiority as a dream, gives it a capital D, it's a big dream. It's a self-enhancing myth of great power. And we've seen over the, the 400 years of this and more of this, of this country in its founding and development, um, how ever more deeply entrenched and invisible that dream has become until more recently. His hope of the moment, he says, is to awaken the dreamers, to rouse us to the facts of what our need to be white has done to the world. Once the dreamers reach, he says, was limbed by horsepower and wind. Now it's an expansion of plunder beyond any known before, plunder of the earth itself, as well as its people. We, there's a, it, this era is uh, often called the Anthropocene, the era, eon of earth in which human activity has immense impact on the whole of earth. And this Anthropocene was not only named primarily by white people, it's caused primarily by those living the dream of whiteness. So if you're interested in climate change, really, you're, it's not separate from an interest in racism and anti-racism. Now, all this doesn't mean that um, that people identifying as white are the cause of all ills, are demented, are inadequate humans. We're all inadequate humans. But the claim of whiteness, this dream of power and oppression, while it's a human problem, is our problem specifically. It's not somebody else's. So another person I've read recently is Isabel Wilkerson. She wrote a very fine book called The Warmth of Other Suns, which is about the great migration. Five million people migrated from the South to the North, mostly in the 20th century, started just before, but mostly in the first half, especially of the 20th century. 
the biggest migration in this country's history, and it was not in my history books. And I didn't understand what it was like to live under Jim Crow or what happened when they came north. How white racism in the north created the ghettos. I recommend it. But Isabel Wilkerson has a new book about to come out. Um, I've read a, a piece from it, so I'm already ordered a copy. This book is called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Wilkerson says, the owner of an old house knows that whatever you ignore will never go away. We did not erect this house, but we are the heirs who live here now. The expanding problems are ours to deal with now. And she proposes that a most useful lens for seeing through the walls and the smoke screens into the power dynamics of racism is to understand it as primarily about caste. A caste system that uses the fabrication of race to organize itself. And she defines a caste system as an architecture of human hierarchy. And she quotes the great anthropologist, Ashley Montague, whom I read many years ago, so I perked up there. Here's another person whose voice I have valued, who said, the idea of race was the deliberate creation of an exploiting class seeking to maintain and defend its privileges over what is profitably regarded as an inferior social caste. And we've inherited this and benefited from it and continue to benefit from it. So a caste system, so, so we have a, another new uh, filter or lens for viewing, we need many, many of these. There's no one that is correct. When I read Ta-Nehisi Coates or Ibrahim Kendi, they say, you know, I used to think this, and then I thought this, and now we think this, and we know that tomorrow it will be different again. We are all changing as we go. So this is a, a very interesting and I think very valuable lens, caste. So a caste system will take ancestry and inborn features that are factually neutral to determine one's caste position. India has its many castes solidified with the myth of destiny. You're destined to be in the caste you're in now and just live it out well and maybe you'll do better next lifetime. Nazi Germany created a caste system in record time out of existing prejudices, primarily against Jews. European slave owning and continental colonizing countries um, created an immensely profitable caste system, extracting human labor and human life and natural resources and offering in return impoverishment, enslavement in the name of superior race and superior culture. Many other societies have done this, either on a large scale or in a more informal and less formal or rigid way. Now we here now, this is our world, our practice, we here now are the inheritors of the American caste system. And though we did not create it, we live in it and we benefit from it at the expense of others. And so race, as Wilkerson describes it, functions as the primary tool and the visible decoy 
of our caste system. We don't have to see the caste system. It's one of those invisible mass delusions because we can see race and then we can take our, have a place that some rationalization explains what our place is in that. And then there's power to reinforce that. See with race showing the caste system can remain hidden and in place. Wilkerson points out that caste isn't personal and it need not involve hatred. So there are many people benefiting from our caste system who do not have hatred in their hearts toward people, the people oppressed, black and brown people, anyone not so-called white. As I say, with a one drop rule, anyone who has is only 99% so-called white isn't white. The rules are extraordinary. Caste isn't personal and need not involve hatred in order to function. It's a structure of expectations and privileges that serves the dominant caste very well. So these are harsh realities to take in. And maybe we can't face them 24 hours every day. We can wake up every day with a fresh intention to face it today. May my mind be kind today. May my mind, may I aim to awaken today, which means awakening to racism and caste, along with the other delusions we need to awaken to. These are harsh realities to take in, and we have to be accountable to the reality we live in and learn to see through the myths. Dreams and oppressions that both support and constrict our lives. So waking up to racism, re refining our anti-racism, these are essential integral parts of our Dharma praxis, of our Bodhisattva path. And to do this well, you have to do it with love. So may I, my thoughts be kind today is an invitation to seeing through the myths of, that are unkind. I can't be kind today if I'm not aiming to see through the unkind myths. There are many benefits to a wider vision, a wider landscape, a wider sky. It's a world we all take part in and a world where we work to take down together walls to disentangle knots. A world where we make effort to live honestly, equally, lovingly, together. Thank you. So, questions and comments are most welcome. Hi, Donna. Hi, good morning. Thank you for your talk. It was absolutely wonderful. So much to think about. Um, I wanted to make a comment about the importance of our language. And you spoke about uh, enlightenment in terms of it being a verb, that it should be a verb instead of a noun. And it reminded me of a book that I uh, read recently called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is by an American, Native American woman and botanist. And she said that 70% of her Native American language is verbs. And 30% of our uh, language is verbs. And, how, and what the importance is of that 
And then um, the second thing I wanted to do is ask a question um, or your, or what, or have you expand on this, but I've noticed with my awakening um, in this exact um, subject that I often am find that my guilt is a barrier and it's not a useful emotion and I have to move through it and move on to be able to be in an active state. And I see that around me in terms of my friends and their comments and people that I know and love. And I don't have yet a voice for that or quite understand how it ties into the situation. So I'm, I'm curious as what you would have to say about guilt. Well, I think there's a big difference that's often mingled between embarrassment and shame. I'm embarrassed when I blurt something out that offends anybody let alone have an idea that, that blurted or not would be offensive is, or is, is, is racist. Um, but to be shamed is to be uh, silenced. Our shame silences us, as guilt does. Guilt isn't relevant. We are here today having inherited what we didn't ask for but which we have benefited from. And I can have some guilt for that, but that's not what is, is relevant. What is relevant really is that I have this, that it is privilege, that I need to see it as that and then say, and what will I do about it? The fact that I have had privilege and have it today calls me to make amends. Mm -hmm. I make amends to a friend. I, when I, it took me a long time, I was a very defensive person. And then I discovered, saying, I'm sorry, I discovered apology. And I, it made it became a big, that was about 40, you know, when I woke up to that, I'm slow, but I discovered that I could say, I'm sorry. And it always brings together. When you say to someone, I'm sorry, they may say, what are you talking about? But basically they're glad that you're noticing you may have had an impact on them and that you care. Mm -hmm. So the, that sense of apology is a way again, to, to unpack guilt. It's okay. So guilt comes up. That, that happens. We need then to look at that. What is real in that? What is false in that? What does it relate to? Mm -hmm. Guilt is for the past, basically. We aren't guilty for what hasn't happened yet. So what has happened in the past? How have we participated? And we didn't even know. We had no idea. So we need to say, okay, I feel guilt, I feel shame, I feel embarrassment, shame and guilt are not so productive, how can I disentangle them to find something that I can actually live with and work with? And just be embarrassed. It's, that's bad enough. Be embarrassed. And then say, oh, I'm embarrassed. I am, I am so sorry that I will, I will take it up. I will do something. Because from embarrassment, we have a little bit more forward motion. Right. So that's, that's what I do. Thank, Thank you. you, Donna. That was very nice. Can Donna please tell us the name of that book again? Um, yes, hold. It's called Braiding Sweet Grass. Um, actually, I was just looking on my stack. I don't see it. Robin, <laughs> Wall, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Thank you. <laughs> it's really lovely. A wonderful book wonderful book in terms of love of the earth and, and the Native American uh, perspective. And it also is very real and sad about our, our legacy 
in terms, I don't know if you call it legacy, but our history uh, with what we've done to the Native Americans as a white population, I say we. Thanks, Donna. So a question about um, ignorance in a way. In other words, uh, recently for the last couple of, like for a week or so, I've simply isolated myself from the news because it's been so overwhelming and, and it just seems like the whole world is totally messed up and this, all this suffering and dying and, and everything. And, and I'm now I'm thinking, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I mean, I don't understand. I just felt like I have to stop and just, you know, relieve myself of this depression and, and just ignore it for a while. But then I'm thinking, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So what do you have to say about that? Thank you. There isn't one right way to live each day. Each day is different. So the need to step back and regroup and feel yourself because that, that feeling that everything is too much is we've extended ourselves sort of so far out into the world and its problems that we've lost our own ground. And to step back to step back into my call retreat into a more inward state for a while, that's perfectly fine. But it's a way of, of returning to yourself, re essentially recharging your batteries as well. And then renewed, we slowly step forward again. I know you will. You don't have to know you will when you step back because you do underneath that know you will. You, you, when you step back from the world that way, you didn't say convincingly to yourself, I'll never go there again. That wasn't what it was about. It was about this is too much. I need to not do that now. Right? And that now, as, that, as the world changes, as your inner state changes, the, the, the time and the energy to look out again, come back. I have great confidence in you, John. It comes, but we do this. We, ha we don't have one stance or one breath for our whole life. Thank you. I have a, I have a question. Um, yeah. <clears throat> this makes me a little nervous asking it. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I was in, at Zen Center in the early 70s, I lived down the street and it was an entirely African-American ghetto in those days. And, um, at Zen Center, there were no neighborhood people practicing there. There were no black people. It was all young white people like myself. Now, fast forward to today in Grayton, and um, there's a large Hispanic community around us of day laborers, but I don't see any practicing at, at the Zendo, um, at least last time. It's been closed for a while. But um, I'm wondering, is there something about Zen itself that puts off people of color and just appeals to uh, white people? No. I don't think so. Do you find there, there is, um, of course, it started with brown colored people, <laughs> put it that way. Um, Dojin has gone to the labor center and spoken about the Dharma in Spanish. But the, the needs of the people at the day labor center are seem to be mostly about surviving and making a decent way of life. They don't have a lot of time and energy left over for the kind of practices we have. Now, once we're settled in the Zen, new Zendo and can all be there, whether it's a year or two years from now, it would be very nice for us to find ways to uh, have, have a practice either for 
people from the labor center or for more locals. We do have locals, great locals in our in our sangha. There's John, there's Ellie, oh, there's David I mean. Henry, but they are not what you mean. So we we reflect our community and the needs of the community. So it would be useful for us to expand the way we describe and present Zen or the Dharma so that it could meet needs of other people than the people we already know how to talk to. Absolutely. We, we, it would be, it's a good thing to do. And we have made little steps and that they haven't built. And so we, we let them go and we, we, something that definitely is time to revisit. Absolutely. Right. I, Similarly, I would say young people, you'll also notice that the majority of the Sangha is of a middle age or older. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And that reflects the population and the avail. When I was, when we were practicing in the seventies and eighties, you could make a living working part-time and you could go practice Zen. Now everybody has two jobs who's under 50 That's and don't point. have, mm-hmm. and don't have time. So the, the, the demographics have shifted, but that doesn't mean that we should not engage. Uh, I also um, just want to say something about that. Uh, The Hispanic community coming from Latin America, where it's highly Catholic, I know that culturally from that particular tradition, there's so much belief that even if you just read something outside of Catholicism, it's wrong. And, you know, that Vatican II has not really trickled down to a lot of a lot of people, and I know that from my family. So um, there's so much resistance to anything not Catholic, and that might also be like one reason why we don't have the Hispanic community coming into the Zendo. So just, just, just to remind us of, of that barrier. Thank you. Thank you, Vicky and Bob. Yeah, also, Jisho, I just want to ask a question. Also, your talk was incredibly helpful but i think honestly i only got 15 percent, so i'm gonna have to listen <laughs> me too yeah and really take notes because even though i've been taking notes i couldn't i couldn't do it all but my big question is since dilution is so it's dilution is something that we are not aware of actually so how do we gradually become aware of dilution I think that's my big question. question. Like I, I, I do expand a lot. I try to anyway, and I always try to question my beliefs and I always try to see the other whose beliefs are very different from mine as equal to mine, even though I think, Oh my God, how can you think that way? Mm -hmm. So any idea that you can offer? Asking questions. And asking different questions. The questions have to change because otherwise they'll become part of the routine. And as 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 you said, we delusion arises all the time. And we knowing that that's one of the benefits of zazen. When you do zazen, you practice letting go of thoughts as as delusions, and that carries over that attitude of trying to at least some of the time holding your thoughts lightly and seeing where you don't paying attention. Having it takes courage for us to pay attention, to pay attention to where you have mentally or emotionally sort of stubbed your toe, or or, or feel uncomfortable. Um, We we can't always do that, 
but it's so valuable. Sangha is that because we each speak a slightly different language, every one of us. And so we bring our different languages and our different experiences together. And a lot of us are going to go get braiding sweetgrass, right? Because Donna brought that into our, our sphere, our language. Um, yeah, I guess so. So it's the the deeper you go into this non-dual thinking as a result of Zazen, I think the more you're able to catch maybe your delusion. Does that is that making sense? You're more I think you're more likely to see it. It'll still rise up, but yes, we are we it, it's one more it's one of the tools things that does really help us see see delusion because we're a little bit less likely to believe in our thoughts in that kind of concrete yeah. way. Okay, thank you so much. Very helpful. Thank you, Vicki. Jisho, I'm all, Jeanette. Um, I'm thinking there were a few pieces to this, but when you mentioned uh, Janai's book and the repeating of activities or delusions or whatever it is we fall into, Mm -hmm. Um, I had this expression that I would say to myself at one time, nothing dies as painfully as a delusion. They come up, you think you've kind of grappled with this particular one and you've, you're alert to it and you're aware of it. And then it has a way of coming around through a different door or a different window. Um, and then now we know, you know, the delusions never die, but you, no matter how well, we hope particular ones will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're hoping particular ones. So when we get discouraged because the same old delusion has come up again, it's evidence of how deep it is. Yeah. And that is probably not just ours. It's being mirrored to us or we wouldn't still be having the same old delusion come up. So then we can even the same old delusion. We can then see from a slightly different vantage point and know that it will keep coming up because we live, for instance, in racism, we live in a racist society. We are fed that we have been fed that and we've benefited. So of course it will keep coming up. And if it didn't come up, that would be more of a problem <laughs> because it would be invisible. It wouldn't have gone away. So that certain level of discomfort, maybe beyond when the people talk about being guilty or shame, maybe it's really discomfort is what we need to be able to tolerate. Embarrassment comes and goes, but it is some of these realities are ongoingly uncomfortable. And so to learn to live with discomfort without it being wrong, to, it's not wrong to be uncomfortable. It's wrong that there's a situation that causes it. And that's one way also to, to speak to the friends who feel guilty, to switch it to discomfort and living with that appropriately. And of the other piece, thank you, thank you. And the piece of um, thing being an alive opportunity to work with things, I, I think of, you know, 50 years ago, I was going to school with Black Panthers standing up and, you know, race issues and very militant expressions then. And I thought they knew something that I didn't know and that needed to be addressed, but it was at that point, it was in such a violent method 
that it that it was very threatening and off-putting. But here we are 50 years later and the situations are similar. Um, they, they have continued. When you look at films and interviews with people of that, of the Black Panthers now, we're, I'm hearing that they were just working with the situation then. They were attempting as we're attempting now. And there is as alive an opportunity now to work with those issues as there was then. But this feels a little more promising. It feels more promising in that there are more white people willing to stand up and engage and it doesn't need to be taking up arms. It's using intellect and heart and it's it feels like a much more educated and heartfelt movement even than 50 years ago so so that's hopeful and there's also the same opportunity to step forward because right now so anyway that's that's what i'm feeling i'm feeling through educating and through risking and through seeing that we all of color need to work together that's how we're going to address this. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for your talk. Thomas, I see you. You have to unmute yourself, Thomas, if you want to say something. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. I was just, um, that was, that comment was just kind of bringing some things up for me. I, I don't know. Is it okay to name that? Um, sure. Sure. Let's be uncomfortable. Let's, let's name I, it. Great. I feel very uncomfortable right now. Thank you. Um, I just, I know that my, struggling to understand um what's going on now is um trying to trying to live with that discomfort in terms of how um people of color raise issues that you know that they shouldn't be responsible for raising them in a way that makes me comfortable because yeah. i'm comfortable and so just to be trying to learn more about that and not um i i don't i don't really know how to i don't know how to, i'm a toddler as well, right? So I don't yeah. know how to words, but I'm I'm just I'm feeling discomfort around around that expectation of that I should that I should be able to feel peaceful or ease or, around the way that something is raised, or that we should be able to say it right, speak in a way that will will meet whatever audience completely, you know. So there are many things to do with our discomfort. One of them is to acknowledge it, take a deep breath and say, here I am, uncomfortable, now what do I learn from this? And another is to take two steps back and call it Zaza, as we call Zaza, and really sit in your own self so that you're not thrown off base, but just uncomfortable. Because that's what happens, discomfort, we go like this, then we tend to feel defensive, and all this cascade happens. If we can stop the cascade, just have some discomfort, and say, oh, that's appropriate, this is an uncomfortable situation for all of us then we can, that context makes it easier to, to keep going forward. And we need each other for that. Thank uh, you, Thomas. I thank you for the talk. Uh, and all the comments have a lot stirring up. Um, I want to echo, um, or I hope we, I hope we keep, keep hold of, of Bob's, um, question about our place in 
in our community, our neighbors and, um, and just keep that question alive so that in, a, in real time, in a real place, we can expand and look at the structures and policies and the attitudes in our own uh, Zen world, you know, that um, can expand and um, include and be, be more inclusive and, and willing to look at other languaging. Like when I volunteered at the Labor Center teaching English, um, you know, there's a tendency that, oh, let's teach the vocabulary for, you know, tools and the garden and yard work and all the work related vocabulary. But I learned that, you know, when I would bring in art books or, um, you know, talk about, or we talk about concerts and music and, or, or someone would talk about yoga and massage. In other words, our, I, our ideas sometimes of um, like this, you know, the, the, there is, you know, the need to survive, but we're, the, there's, a, there's a whole person there that just is, has so much wanting to express itself and has so many limitations in the way we are structuring their life through our policies and so forth. So um, anyway, I just hope we keep the question alive and maybe we can uh, um, cultivate something new. You know, there, this is a maturing Sangha and we're going to have this really re renovated home. And there are two things that can, two directions that a maturing can go in. One is settling into what to the known and becoming entrenched. And the other is having confidence to expand outward. So let's take that path as we can. Thank you, Liz. Can I just add one quick thing? Sure, of course. Um, just to, and, and Annette, uh, not to, to pile on, but <laughs> calling forth your, yourself as a transmitted teacher that, that I, think, um, I think you're expressing something that a lot of, that people, uh, particularly in the white community, feel about the Black Panthers, for example. About and what? The Black Panthers. Oh, yeah. And, and I think it's really uh, drawing on what Jisha was offering today of like asking different questions um, about who, who, what that movement was, who those folks were, what they're doing. There's, there's a complexity to what the Black Panthers offered in the community. I don't know enough, but I know some that like, we're talking about food distribution and childcare and um, summer mm. programs and like just a lot of, um, and, and that, that what look, what was kind of peddled in the white community as violence and that, that Black Lives Matter was called a terrorist organization and responded to that way is um, a real misapprehension of, of what was actually happening in the black community and the, and the roots of where it's coming from. And that, and that like, yes, there are, there were, there were militant parts of that movement, but they're in response to like tremendous violence coming toward it. It's like a, a natural, you know, what's, what do we call it? Like self-defense, you know, <laughs> the level of violence coming to the black community. I just want to, I just want to, that thing of like opening, having a question and well, what is it? And those things that we were taught, revisiting, you know, there's, there's so much maturing um, and deepening and opening and undoing that we can do and revisit things we, we just or, or were given when we were younger. Thank you.